Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and the U.S. appeals court rejects Biden's bid to revive his student debt plan. Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, stops by to tell us about the real motives behind the attacks on public schools. Then we'll talk to Congressman Richie Torres about a new era of younger Democratic Party leadership in the House. But first, we have the Daily Beast congressional reporter, Sam Brody. Oh, my God. Welcome to Fast Politics, Sam Brody. It's great to be here. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. So let's talk about what is happening, because this is a lame duck, but filled with drama. Talk to us about some of the drama. There's all kinds of drama happening. This is a big changing of the guard moments in Congress, and not just because Republicans are going to switch into the House majority, but yesterday Democrats elected a new leadership team basically for the first time in 20 years, which is hugely significant. And it was, you know, kind of dramatic in a sense because it's so important, but there was like no drama to it whatsoever. Like Democrats absolutely lined up behind their their new team of Hakeem Jeffries, who's replacing Nancy Pelosi as leader, and then Catherine Clark as the number two and Pete Aguilar as the number three. The drama is really happening on on the Republican side right now as Kevin McCarthy like furiously tries to cobble together 218 votes to become Speaker of the House, which is so funny that this is playing out this way because 
it was sort of assumed that the drama was going to be on the Democratic side after Pelosi left. There were so many questions as to what the post-Pelosi era would look like, who might step up. You know, Hakeem Jeffries was considered the heir apparent, but like there were some other people in the mix. Whereas it was like assumed on the Republican side that, okay, Kevin McCarthy, if he gets the majority, he's going to be in charge. Not looking like a super sure bet right now. There is a lot of people on the Republican side who are at least saying right now that they're not going to support him as speaker. So some Republicans in disarray kind of right now. So talk to me about this, because the sort of fascinating data point here with everything you read is that McCarthy doesn't have the votes, but there's no one else. And so McCarthy's going to get it. That seems like a flawed logic discuss. Yeah. You know, the thing about that kind of logic is that there's no one else until there is someone else. That's kind of the way these things tend to work out. At the end of the day, it's it's going to be about Kevin McCarthy and whether his conference wants him to be in that position. And if he doesn't get the votes, I mean, I, I think the, the people who oppose him are viewing this as a referendum on him. If he doesn't get the votes, something else is going going to happen. And, you know, we've seen leaders in the past emerge this way where no one's really talking about them and it ends up happening. I mean, when John Boehner left, Kevin McCarthy was also the heir apparent then. He sort of had to fold that campaign because he didn't get support. And Paul Ryan, who is sort of a big figure, there isn't somebody like him with that kind of stature now that Paul Ryan had then. But no one was saying like, oh, Paul Ryan's definitely going to be the speaker. But McCarthy bowed out and Paul Ryan ended up being the speaker. So weird things can happen. And it's really about whether these conservatives trust Kevin McCarthy to do this job. So let's talk about what you're seeing otherwise in the leadership. For example, it seems like there's sort of five people have already said, or maybe more, that they won't support McCarthy. How many votes does McCarthy need to get to be speaker? He needs 218, and there are going to be 222 Republicans. He can lose four. And there are at least five people out there in the Republican side who are saying they won't support McCarthy or are currently not supporting McCarthy. But this is where things get really interesting because I think there are probably three maybe who are just hard nosed, just not ever going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. That could be fine for him. Who are those people or are there backbenchers none of us have ever heard of? Friend of the show, well, friend of our show, maybe at the Daily Beast, the gentleman from Florida, Matt Gates. <laughs> Lol. He's, he's going to be a no, no matter what. A couple other guys, I mean, Andy Biggs, who was the only one to actually run against McCarthy when Republicans had their closed door nominating vote, he's going to be a no. And then I think another backbench or two may just kind of do it to make a statement. So that's where things are at. I, I think there's like a larger group that are out right now not supporting him. But this this may end up being kind of the tough bargain, maybe the poison pill that Kevin McCarthy swallows, because there are these hardliners in the Freedom Caucus who, you know, I think will vote for McCarthy, but they want to extract some real stuff out of him. Basically, they want to extract rules changes that will give them a lot more power and give McCarthy a lot less power if he's speaker. This rule, I just want to stop you, is, is something where they can call him up for election as speaker anytime they want, right? Basically, and then there's just a number of other things that if they're adopted would make Kevin McCarthy's life miserable. It gives rank and file members a lot more power to 
shape the legislative process and force legislative action on things that, say, Kevin McCarthy might really not want them to do. It's sort of like this Faustian bargain where in order to become speaker, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to make a deal that is going to make his job as speaker that much more difficult. And I think that's something that maybe gets lost a little bit in this conversation. Obviously, it's important to watch whether Kevin McCarthy actually gets the votes. But in order to get the votes, he's going to start on, you know, day one as speaker, he's just going to start rolling the boulder up the hill that day. I mean, that's really it. It's this hard for him just to get to the starting block. And these rule changes could make it really hard for him to function as speaker. Thoughts? prayers. I just want to get back to this idea for a second because I don't have a lot of love for, for Kevin McCarthy. Could you see a Steve Scalise being this sort of more consensus candidate? Or is there really no one who is uh, has emerged as a possible challenger? No one has really emerged as a possible challenger. And I think that Scalise actually, just on paper, is more of a consensus candidate, probably just in, in terms of the fundamentals. The thing is, is that McCarthy and Scalise have this rivalry going back a long time, and they have their respective loyalists. And people are just very, my sense has been that that Republicans are wary of backing Scalise as, as the alternative, just because that kind of dynamic has been so set for a long time and they have their respective camps. And I think the sense is that it would have to be somebody who's not in the current leadership if it does fall apart or or something like that. It, w- it would have to be someone who has not been in the mix and been courting votes and built up their own base of support because then it becomes personal for people who would maybe not support McCarthy if, if they bring in Scalise, because then it just kind of kicks up all this this sort of dust that's been percolating on the Republican side drama-wise for the last few years. So let's talk about what is going to happen in the lame duck. I also do want to talk about this caucus, the, the D triple C caucus chair, because that is now open. We saw that was Sean Patrick Maloney's seat. Sean Patrick Maloney lost his seat in this redistricting, perhaps surprisingly. Now they're looking for the two people who volunteered for the job. Talk to us about that. That seems like a crazy story. Yeah, I think Democrats right now are in a moment of reevaluating what the DCCC chair should look like. It was pretty shocking that Sean Patrick Maloney lost. And I think stepping back and looking at the rest of what happened in New York, it's really, you know, not that shocking at all. But party committee chairs are just not supposed to lose. There were some things that happened during the campaign where the D-trip spent uh, to protect Sean Patrick Maloney. And that's an internally sensitive move because your job number one is supposed to be protecting the rest of the members. So all this stuff has, has Democrats thinking about, okay, should the DCCC chair even be a member at all? I mean, there's no inherent rule that it that it has to be. It's just a convention that it is. So at this moment right now, Democrats are sort of thinking about ways in which they could make this job a little less fraught, maybe free this person up from, I don't know, having to worry about are they going to get reelected on top of trying to you know, stay in the majority or, or take back the majority. What I'm told from folks just checking in throughout the week on this stuff is that it's unlikely that Dems are going to do this kind of like wholesale reimagining of the position. So it's probably still going to be a member of Congress who does it. But people aren't super satisfied with the current chairs or the current shared candidates who are out there. They both have a lot of scandals, those two people who put themselves out. Backbenchers with lots of scandals. Right. Ami Barra has had 
had to run competitive elections in the past, but not in the last few cycles. Tony Cardenas has never had to run a competitive election against a Republican. Usually people want D-trip chairs to have at least some knowledge at some point of, of how to win a campaign against a Republican. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there. And, and what I think is kind of crazy about this is like 2024, like Democrats could take back the House in 2024. They really could. Especially if, if Republicans are doing what they're planning on doing with the Hunter Biden stuff. And you just look at the math. I mean, there there is a good like if Democrats take half of the seats that went for Biden and are currently represented by Republicans, they'll, they'll win the House. So someone can step up and be the hero, you know. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of folks who are, you know, waving their hands in the air and being like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. It's a bit of a weird dynamic. There is this lame duck now. It seems like defense of marriage is going to pass, right? It's passed the Senate, but not the House yet. That's right. It passed the Senate, which was really the hurdle. And the real question in the House is how many votes will it get? How many Republicans will will vote for it? I think that's like an interesting question for Congress nerds and maybe a sense of where this House Republican conference might get at, but it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to pass. And I think they're going to put it on the floor next week. And then there's this, the quote was, nobody wants to give Kevin McCarthy a grenade with the pin pulled already about this debt ceiling issue. Talk to us about the debt ceiling issue. Yeah. So it's crazy that this is where things are at now. A few years ago, this wasn't the case, but you have the leader, the presumptive leader of, of the House Republican Conference basically saying we're willing to play politics with the debt limit. I mean, nobody said that 20 years ago. And like five years ago, it was just kind of the the cranks who said it and, you know, they had enough power to make things happen. So the name of the game here in, in the lame duck across the board is like, how much can Democrats get done to set themselves up for success and give the Republican majority in the House just fewer opportunities to, I guess, how can I say this elegantly, like fuck shit up? I really don't know. Like fuck shit up is perfect. And one of the things that Kevin McCarthy is, is really going to I think probably try to do is because it's still going to be divided government. So the Senate being democratic, it, it limits his options. But from the investigations to how they handle government funding, they want to create problems for Joe Biden ahead of a 2024 reelection bid potentially. The debt limit could be one of those things. I think it's sometime early next year. So, I mean, that lands right. That's the grenade that rolls right into the Republican foxhole that they could toss over to the White House if they, <laughs> if they choose. You know, I, but I think everything gets harder right now because Republicans know that the clock is ticking on, on Democratic control. And if they're able to drag certain things out, the, the clock will run out and January 3rd, Republicans will be in charge. There's already been an incredible spate of letters written by Kevin McCarthy about all of the things he plans to do when he gets the job he doesn't have yet. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I every day I see another letter from him. McCarthy is, if he gets to this position, aside from the rules changes, is going to be pulled in about a million different directions. And I think what will be called oversight by Republicans is going to be a really important thing to watch because Republicans, the bills they pass are not going to become law. And so oversight is the way that they can toss red meat to the the kind of more MAGA members of their conference to keep them happy and to keep them from revolting against Kevin McCarthy. Yet McCarthy also has some of these new members who just came in and you might have heard some of them after the election. For example, the guy who beat Sean Patrick Maloney, his name is Mike Waller. He's elected and he's like, you know, I, I really, 
you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but he, he really expressed no interest in like a Hunter Biden Benghazi committee or anything like that. He's like, people, you know, people don't really want us to do that. So he's going to be pulled in these different directions. So I think viewing all these letters and Jim Jordan has a bunch of letters that have come out. He's going to be the chair of the Sherry Committee. Yes, I saw an amazing Jim Jordan letter today where he's going to investigate the investigators. He is. <laughs> Without his jacket, I would hope. Right. Here's a really good example of why this is all a little bit of kabuki theater. McCarthy sends out this letter saying, January 6th committee, keep your records. We're going to take hold of those (laughs) and we're going to show the American people. And I think people who follow the January 6th committee would say, or support it, would say, sure, man, go ahead, take them. Like, get all of our stuff out there. We left some stuff on the cutting room floor. It would be great if you guys could air that, (laughs) continue to air that. Because I'm sure they're sitting on plenty of stuff that is going to reflect a lot more poorly on on Trump and his his backers than it is on the January 6th committee. I highly doubt that Kevin McCarthy is going to go down that road. So it's important to view that stuff through what is Kevin McCarthy's posturing and how is he using oversight or oversight threats just as a way to keep his his people in line. There is one thing that came into mind that I do think is super important to note in terms of like the lame duck. And that's kind of in the investigations thing, which is, I'm sure you're following the ways and means Trump tax stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have the taxes now, right? They have it now. They also have a month before, <laughs> before the, uh, before the Republicans take charge. So I think there's some really interesting questions as to how does Richie Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, handle this. You know, Nancy Pelosi still, you know, kind of she's technically still the leader until until January 3rd. I'm sure she's working closely with Jeffries. But how do they decide to handle this? And I think it's fair to say with with these records, I mean, when Republicans take charge of that committee, they're going to, you know, that's going to be put in the file cabinet um, in a very, very quiet corner of, of the Capitol. <laughs> the file, get the paper shredder file cabinet. So I just want to just clearly just go this for one second. So basically all of Kevin McCarthy's grand plans will endanger all of the seats the Republicans just won. I think it's fair to say that, yeah, the proof is sort of in the pudding. These folks got elected and they're saying, you know, we we really are not really that interested in doing any of this stuff. It's a remarkable moment of, you know, Republicans kind of catching the car. They've got the House after all these expectations of a huge red wave that didn't materialize. And their base is really hungry for them to make a Hunter Biden laptop committee. And the people who just put them in the majority are like, not so fast. This is a bad idea. It would be one thing if there was a 40 seat Republican majority like Republicans talked about. And, you know, folks like the guy who beat Sean Patrick Maloney would kind of be irrelevant. Well, that's not what happened. They have a four seat majority. I I think because of what happened, the voices on the Republican side who are wanting to pump the brakes on all this Hunter Biden stuff and impeaching, you know, Mayorkas, impeaching, you know, this person and that person, like the voices saying pump the brakes are, are going to be a lot more listened to, I think, by Kevin McCarthy. Fantastic. So interesting. Thank you so much. Please come back, Sam. Yes, I will come on anytime. It's always so fun. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. 
Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Randy Weingarten is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. Welcome to Fast Politics, the most dangerous person in the world, Randy Weingarten. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, when I saw it initially, Molly, I was bemused because I'm like, oh, my God, he must be running for president. Like, I have never heard Mike Pompeo utter my name or a word about education, much less teachers or math or science or literacy or whatever. So I'm like, hmm, I guess he's trying to out Betsy DeVos here. Yes. What I really hated about it, look, I don't really care what he says about me, although in this moment in time, because it signals things to extremists, right. you know, it can be very dangerous. This is what I really cared about. He called what teachers do filth. That's what I really cared about. For everyone who doesn't totally know the situation, Mike Pompeo, a blowhard of the of worst kind, has decided that he wants to run for president. And one of the ways he's trying to get the base excited is by attacking 
you because you are the two things Republicans hate, teachers, unions. And this is a culture war trope that they've gotten very excited about. And then he followed up by saying you're the most dangerous person in the world. The sort of Republican attack on and education has sort of taken, it's been a multi-pronged attempt. First, I want to talk to you about the book banning and that element of it, you know, that there are things too dangerous to learn. That seems to me to be a sort of interesting revival of a kind of 1950s thing. I mean, are you surprised that that came down the pike or were you waiting for that? Or has that always been there? So let me give you my 30 second to my minute analysis of this. You know, you have the oligarchs and the gazillionaires, like the Koch brothers, the Ulines, the DeVosses. They've always seen this amount of money that goes into education and they've tried to figure out how do they glom onto it you know first they want to cut their taxes but they really want to glom onto this money they came up with vouchers and charters and all sorts of other competition and things like that but 90 some odd percent of parents still want to send their kids to public schools so you have that group of people and remember pompeo is very connected to the Koch brothers But then on top of it, this is the new part, that the combination of what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and in the aftermath of COVID is what has made the culture wars into a high octane battle. Because people, you know, at the beginning of COVID, parents who started watching what their kids were doing with teachers on Zoom. We were getting just tremendous love for teachers about how engaged they were and what they were trying to do and how much they were trying to do. And we kept, you know, all sorts of places open for food delivery and things like that. And, you know, you saw all that. But what happened between George Floyd's murder and everyone seeing seven minutes of this guy being killed by a police officer and seeing that video, it created a lot of empathy and it created a lot of sense of, oh my God, racism is really going on in the country. Put a pin in that for a second. And then on top of that, all of the dislocation and the disruption, because two or three years of people not being in school uh, or their calendars disrupted, their lives disrupted and the uncertainty created a lot of uncertainty. Those two things were the recipe for chaos, vilification, and division. So what has these culture wars been? Now now think about them. The culture wars, get rid of social emotional learning in schools. Get rid of, of the teaching, forget about book banning for a second, the teaching of Anne Frank and Ruby Bridges and calling honest history critical race theory, which no one knows. And then what happened with trans kids? $50 million in the last election cycle to try to vilify trans kids. And it didn't work. Not working is the best part of that whole story. Yeah, exactly. But my point is there were seeds here that made it very seductive for the Steve Bannons and the chaos, disruptors, dividers to say, let's exploit the anxiety. But also they were really, really fearful, which is why you saw the attack 
and teaching honest history and why you see the attack on social emotional learning, they're really afraid that we were bringing people together and understanding that everybody has to be seen. And we really need to take on racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia and Islamophobia. And that idea of bringing people together and public schools doing it, they're really, really afraid of that. That's why I think that I am the most dangerous person to him, because that's what public schools should be doing, bringing people together and helping kids not only recover, but thrive. As someone who has school-age kids who went through the pandemic, there has definitely been learning loss. I mean, that is nobody is arguing about that. In fact, the teachers have been pretty open about that. The thing I always hoped would happen, and I wonder why there isn't more openness to this. This is just like me as a parent is I wonder why there isn't more openness to like doing a 13th year of school for people, because I do feel like they missed a lot of like emotional learning, et cetera. What happens when people start talking about a 13th or a 14th year of high school, as opposed to a dual enrollment program, is that everybody is leery about the concept of leaving kids back or, you know, holding people back because of a pandemic. Having kids suffered enough and leaving kids back is always viewed as a penalty as opposed to, you know, this is good for someone. It's always, you know, even thinking about how the term is used. So that's why those of us in education talk about accelerated learning. Of course, this pandemic hurt kids. It hurt families. It hurt the country. And if you're five years old and all of a sudden you're not playing with your friends for months and months at a time and you don't know one day from the next, do you got to wear a mask? Do you not have to wear And I think we were wrong by not being more open to saying, look, of course, this period of time is terrible. What we were trying to do is educators were trying to do everything in their power to keep kids up. I think what we have to do is think about accelerated learning. Think about high schools really differently, meaning let's make sure there's pathways in high schools to college and to career. Let's make sure that we can readily do dual enrollment programs and businesses be part of this in terms of how we help kids get certification or apprenticeship programs or things like that. So effectively having a 13th year or 14th year, but doing it in a really different way. Because I think the psychological issues right now are as important as almost anything else. We have to help kids get their mojo back and their confidence back and a sense that they can be on the path to you know, success. Because think about, look, I'm old already. I'm, I'm going to be 65 years old this month. But think about the generation, Gen Z and the other generations born in the 90s and the 2000s. They went through the 2008 recession and they're going through this. That's a lot of pain to go through at the start of one's life. So that's why I'm, I'm thinking, let's find real ways of having pathways like career tech ed, like all the stuff that's happening with chips, do all the kind of tutoring that is going on right now. Let's help kids get their mojo back 
and really focus on mental health and, and disrupting isolation. There was a moment with the pandemic where I really thought that um, it would bring us all together. And a lot of historians sort of hoped that it would be that. And instead, you know, the way the Great Depression did, there were sort of moments of connection. And even the 1918 flu pandemic in a certain way brought people together. But instead, we've had this very polarized sort of attack on these teachers, you know, mad, the right has been very mad at teachers for masking, mad at teachers for not having in-person school sooner. And, you know, what I think is interesting is like, you know, that one year when the pandemic really started, you know, there wasn't in-person school. But as soon as we started to really learn about it and there were vaccines, as soon as humanly possible, everyone got back into the classroom. Republicans tried to run on that in this midterm and they really weren't able to because it just didn't catch fire the way they had hoped, which I do think is probably a good sign about the American people. I do, too. And and look, let's just be real. In-school learning is a lot more effective than being on Zoom and being remote. And one of the reasons it's more effective is that people, I don't want to sound like Barbara Streisand, people, people <laughs> need people, but people need people. Yeah. And kids need to be in relation with one another. But as one of the people who from April 2020, I mean, this is this is what's so hard about living in this post truth society that we're in and where there doesn't seem to be any guardrails against the extremists disinforming or telling of lies. But from April 2020, my union was trying to figure out how to get people back into school in a safe way. And I think what happened here was the politics and Trump's political need to try to win re-election. He decided the way he was going to win re-election was to first pretend that COVID didn't exist. And then he completely mishandled the pandemic as he mishandled virtually everything else. But what happened as a result is, you know, with the exception of Fauci, you didn't really trust very many other people who were speaking from that podium about what was going on. So look at what happened. Andrew Cuomo all of a sudden became the de facto president for the moment. I think that the uncertainty about what was going on created anxiety and the politics infected it in a way that was just gross and made people more uncertain. And look at it now. Millions of people have died. We now have three um, respiratory viruses that are putting a lot of people in the hospital. But nobody wants to talk about any of this or take any kind of measures because of, you know, the politics of COVID. I think if Biden was the president when COVID first started, we would have had a very different response and I think there was there would have been a real shot of bringing the country together. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I would also say that under Trump, we lost a million people. Most countries that are wealthy countries like us lost many, many fewer. So, I mean, you know, there was a lot of malpractice governing malpractice, as one would expect. And the way in which Trump acted people were dispensable. And the way in which they acted in terms of the opening of schools, I mean, I just want to put some facts out. As soon as the vaccines were available, and we were very grateful, we are the fastest growing healthcare union, and we're the second largest teacher union and the largest college union. 
So 90% of my members, as soon as the vaccines were available, ultimately got the vaccines and wanted to be in schools. Overwhelmingly, 70 to 80% of my members wanted to be in schools. They just wanted to be safe. And if you look at Biden's record in terms of school opening, even during Omicron versus Trump's record, even in the highest places, the highest incidence of Omicron last January, 98% of schools were open compared to Trump, 45% schools. These school board meetings, one of the things that Steve Bannon has been, well, for the, the midterms more, but also now, they've encouraged their people to run for school boards. You had a lot of pretty incredible, you know, videos of people. There were people talking about, the, you know, there was this uh, lie that a child had identified as a cat and that the teachers had put a cat litter box in this classroom. A lot of Republican candidates ran on this lie, even though it's not true. Are you seeing a downstream effect from these school board uh, candidates? And explain. Yes. Number one, you know, and we're still getting all the results from all the school board elections. In the main, the pro-public education candidates won, particularly in blue areas and in a lot of purple areas. In red areas, you saw kind of a mix, a mixed bag. But what is happening is that it is creating, and USA Today had a great article about this yesterday or in the last couple of days, It is really creating a huge chilling effect on teachers. So that story about the cat, the cats and litter, it was gross. It was disgusting. It was a lie. The other thing that's gross and disgusting and a lie is that teachers are grooming kids or trying to convince kids to change sexes. It's gross. But it goes back to the point I was trying to make before, which is you need teachers and kids to have a trusting connection with each other. All of this is intended to break that bond and to undermine public schools. And that's what's so dangerous about it. Yeah. A guy like Pompeo, he knows better. He's a West Point guy. He is the head of the CIA. He knows what are the seeds of authoritarianism. It's this dehumanization and it's this distrust And he is walking right into it intentionally because of his political aspirations. This is so interesting. I hope you will come back. Thank you so much, Randy Weingarten. Of course. Thank you. Congressman Richie Torres represents New York's 15th congressional district. Welcome to Fast Politics, Richie Torres. It's always an honor to be here with you. It's always an honor to have you. Such an interesting time to be a Democrat. You had some votes this morning. Will you tell our listeners about what happened this morning? So I'm proud to report that the House Democratic Caucus has selected Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn, as the first person of color to lead House Democrats uh, in the history of the United States. Hopefully one day he will become the first speaker of color in the United States. So we've made history. He's going to be a powerful face and voice for the party. He's one of, he's, I would argue he's our best communicator, and our best spokesperson. And so it's exciting to be part of making history. It's so interesting because I was thinking about it and I was thinking in the House it's different, but in the Senate, there are still only two black senators. And, you know, just as important as the 
racial diversity is generational. Right. Congress historically has been something of a gerontocracy. You know, the three leading Democrats in the House are at or above the age of 80. All but a few of the committee chairs are at or above the age of 70. You know, at age 35, I'm essentially an embryo in the United States Congress. <laughs> Wait, there are three. I'm sorry. There are three African-American senators, which is extremely small. And there's only ever been 12. I think it's like they're 12 or 13 uh, throughout history, which is like crazily small. I want to talk to you about this sort of the way that this went down, because it does seem very organized. Hakeem and Catherine Clark, who's going to be the minority whip, and Pete Aguilar, who's set to be the chair of the caucus. The three of them essentially ran as a team, as a slate. And the three of them have been hard at work cultivating relationships with members, campaigning for members across the country, raising money for the party. The three of them laid the groundwork for, you know, I mean, it might it might seem like a coronation, but I feel like that ignores the immense amount of time and effort that each of them put into their campaign for leadership. Can you talk a little bit about there's some anxiety on the progressive side that Representative Jeffries maybe won't play ball or, you know, has a strained relationship with the progressive wing of the party. What do you think about that? And you're on the ground. So do you see that or now? Look, everyone has detractors, but you'd be hard pressed to find a member who is more deeply and broadly respected within the caucus than Hakeem. I mean, he has... He appeals to a broad cross-section of the Democratic Caucus. And he has a deep relationship with Mark Pocan, who's the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. He commands respect from the New Dems, from the Blue Dogs, from the problem solvers. You know, he's respected across the board. There's always going to be critics who will find fault with everything. But if you examine Hakeem's record, progressive by any standard, I mean, he was instrumental in passing the most consequential criminal justice reform legislation in recent history in the, in, the, in the First Step Act, giving second chances to those who had criminal records at the federal level. So if you look at his record, rather than listen to critics in the peanut gallery, I think you would conclude that he is fundamentally progressive. He's pragmatic because his position requires it. What do you see in this lame duck now? It looks like today defense of marriage was voted through the Senate. That seems like a pretty big deal. What else do you see happening now in these this last month? So we are set to pass the Respect for Marriage Act in the House, uh, which would protect both the right to same-sex marriage and interracial marriage and codify marriage equality in federal law. We're going to pass the National Defense Authorization Act. The hope is that we can pass an omnibus, a budget that will fund the federal government. But McConnell wants more money for the military. The Republicans always want more funding for the military. And then there are Republicans who are simply against passing an omnibus altogether. We simply want to shut everything down. What do you think it's going to be? It's going to be this big changeover, right? With this, even though Republicans have very small, are going to have a very small majority, they're still going to have the majority. But, but it's not clear whether the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, has enough votes to become speaker. Right. Like we might go to the floor without knowing whether he has the votes to become speaker. It's, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, you know, we often draw a false equivalence between the left and the right, or the far left and the far right. Right. But in truth, the Democratic caucus is unified, whereas the Republican caucus has hostage takers who are willing to hold their own leader by ransom. You know, we would never do to our leader what the far right is doing to Kevin McCarthy. 
it's amusing to watch. Yeah, I do have to say, Kevin McCarthy, this will be the second time Kevin McCarthy has been. I mean, there may have actually been more times, but the most recent time with Paul Ryan, where he just I feel like he doesn't want to make that mistake again, where he sort of gets to the finish line and then it doesn't work. I could see him bringing it to the floor without actually knowing whether he has the votes. Wow. The last time that has happened is probably the early 20th century. It's sort of fascinating because when you talk to people in the pundit class about why McCarthy is going to be the speaker, and I'm and I'm thinking of people on the conservative leaning in the pundit class, they'll say, well, there's no one to challenge him. But I'm not sure that's the kind of endorsement that gets your people's votes. There's always someone waiting in line to become speaker. So I, that, that seems unpersuasive to me. Right. And it seems like the hostage takers in the Republican conference want to make an example, want to send a message. I mean, these people are arsonists and we have a diversity of a, opinion in the Democratic caucus, but there's no one in our caucus who's an arsonist who's a hostage state. There's no equivalent of a Matt Gates. Yeah, I don't know if you read, there was a really interesting op-ed this morning by someone who had worked in GOP leadership during the Clinton-Monica stuff. And it was super interesting. And he talked about this idea of like trying to find the scandal to pin on the Democratic can, you know, candidate, politician, etc. And he talked in this piece about this idea that they're just convinced that Hunter Biden's laptop is going to bring down Joe Biden and that that actually voters really don't like that, but that that seems very much what they're committed to doing. I mean, what do you think about that? And like, you'll be in this Congress when this happens, which should be really interesting and strange. The Republican Party, particularly the extremes of the Republican Party, are radically disconnected from reality. The midterm elections were clearly a rejection of extremism. You know, we're not for January 6th, we're not for the reversal of Roe versus Wade, we're not for the extremism of the Republican Party. You might have had the makings of a traditional red wave election. Instead, the Republicans were undone at the hands of their own extremism. And instead of allowing themselves to be chastened and humbled by the results, you have people like Matt Gates who are doubling down on their extremists. I predict the Republicans will self-destruct and we will take back the House in two years. I was thinking about this a lot, this idea that like Trump has been responsible for the loss of three elections now. Every swing state Trumpy candidate lost, but there seems to be no self-reflection there. You get the sense that there is some measure of Trump fatigue, but you're right. The grip that Trump has on the Republican Party is not yet broken. And in fact, what I found telling, and Trump had dinner with vicious anti-Semites. And I mean, Nick Fuentes is an avowed white supremacist. And Kanye West, when he had dinner with them, there were very few Republicans who were willing to speak out against him. There were very few Republicans who were willing to condemn Donald Trump for elevating probably the most anti-Semitic voices in the United States. And so that speaks to the fear factor. That speaks to the continuing grip that Donald Trump has on the psyche of the Republican Party and the terror and the fear that he strikes in the hearts of Republicans. I know you're not a psychiatrist, but do you think they're, that it's just they're scared of the primary challenges and the hate mail and the death threats? Or do you think they really think there's no other way to, that they think that their base is really still very much belongs to Trump? I think it's a combination of factors. You certainly have people who are true believers, who are true adherence of Trumpism, which has become a religion in the Republican Party. There are Republicans who do recognize that Trump is a liability. You know, his endorsement is the kiss of death, but who are too afraid to speak out against them for the reasons that you just said. 
He remains popular among the base of the Republican Party, and he's heavily favored to become the Republican nominee. The only person who has a fighting chance of defeating him in a Republican primary is Ron DeSantis, but uh, no one should underestimate Trump's control of the Republican Party. And for what it's worth, I prefer him as the nominee because he's much more readable. But that he's so toxic that it is just like the things he does to America are not worth it. You know, I fear Ron DeSantis because he's a more competent form of Trump. Right. But he plays the same game, but he can do so while appearing competent and moderate at the same time. And, and there's a sense in which that is more insidious, more dangerous. Yeah, that makes sense. So I just want to talk to you about what your plan is now. My plan is to remain in Congress, but unfortunately, I'm going to join the minority. And so we're going to be part of the resistance to the extremes and excesses of a House Republican majority. I have no doubt that the Republicans will attempt to wage frivolous impeachment proceedings, particularly against Mayorkas. Like he's the cabinet secretary who has become the prime target of the Republicans. I expect an endless stream of frivolous hearings about Hunter Biden. So it's going to be a painful two years. But look, we're fully prepared to push back against the Republicans and fight for the American people. There will be Democrats on these committees. Yeah, so the committees will remain bipartisan, but the Republicans will control them. Whether the Republicans control the House by one seat or 100 seats, the outcome is the same. The Republicans control the speaker, will control the speakership, uh, and will control the committees. Will they decide who goes on committees? Historically, the Republicans will determine the number of seats that the minority party gets and then leaves it to the party to decide who gets to be a member of the committee. But there's an exception. McCarthy announced that he's going to remove particular Democrats from particular committees. So he's targeting Adam Schiff on the Intelligence Committee, Eric Swallow on the Intelligence Committee, and Ilan Omar on the Foreign Affairs Committee, which to me is a dangerous game. Right. He's doing that as reciprocity for Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Okay. To me, it's dangerous to remove people from committees simply because you disagree with the board. Right. Because where does that end? It never stops. It's going to be an endless cycle of retaliation. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't get removed from her committees because she was wacky. She got removed. In the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, she, you know, she engaged in rhetoric that incited violence. Right. Potential to incite violence. So there was unethical conduct. But, you know, removing Adam Schiff from the Intelligence Committee simply because you disagree with you know, his views on the connection between Russia and, and Trump. That's ridiculous. Yeah. McCarthy is, you know, is hostage to these more fringy Republicans. But in the end, he might be hoisted by his own fraternity. Right. He is also very, very stupid, which will make this even more strange and interesting. I expect the Republicans to self-destruct. The, the parties become unhinged. It's become a cult of personality around Trump. It's becoming capable of governing. Like the irony is that democratic control of the presidency, the House and the Senate actually led to more bipartisanship, not less. But also the GOP base, they don't want to see that. The Matt Gaetzes, the Josh Hawleys, the Ted Cruz's of the world are content to be performers and to grandstand in front of cameras and to obstruct and oppose everything. None of these people have the slightest interest in governing. Which to me, like, you know, if you have no interest in governing or legislating, then why become a legislator? I mean, I feel like it's like with Ted Cruz. They want to be a celebrity, but not necessarily a legislator. And my view is you can either be a celebrity or a congressperson, but in the end, you cannot be both. Richie Torres, so interesting. Very thrilled to have you. Keep us posted. Always. Never a dumb woman in D.C. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, come back soon. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jung fast. Jesse Cannon. Uh, I, I saw that you spent your day doing what I did. The moment of fuckery has to be the three-hour live stream that you and I both watched. I did not watch three hours. I only watched like about 40 minutes. <laughs> no, I tapped out when he started saying that Clockwork Arge was really about the Jews. Everything is about the Jews. So for those of you who are not extremely online and also for my dad, hi, dad. What we're talking about is a man called Alex Jones. You know him for lying about the murders of children in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, that Alex Jones had a live stream and on it was Kanye West now called Ye, <laughs> spelled Ye, and Nick Fuentes, a white supremacist, and also Ali Alexander, who's most famous for his involvement in the January 6th riots, and also Laura Loomer. And the uh, long panel, it was a long panel where Kanye said a lot of really, 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 really anti-Semitic things about the Jews. It was a lot of back and forth. Probably the most abs absurd part of the whole thing was that Alex Jones was actually trying to tell Kanye that the Jews weren't all bad. So, you know, one of my favorite parts is when he said, come home, Kim, come home to Christ. Kanye says Hitler invented highways and microphones. Kanye also said, I see good things about Hitler also. Kanye also said, as Jesse and I both watched it, uh, he said, my website is the Bible. That was one thing he said that didn't make much sense. And then another thing he said is, I love Jewish people, but I also love Nazis. I like Hitler. He said, they did good things. We've got to stop dissing the Nazis all the time. To end it, he had Ali Alexander and Alex Jones tweet to his 32 million followers on Twitter, tons of dumb things about January 6th prisoners. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. So it is our moment of fuckery and Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's it. We didn't kill him. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.